standard issue for all women. Hello, hello, Mickey here. Welcome to this week's Sunday Chops, in which you're about to hear my natter, and it really is a natter, with the glorious Kate Fox, poet, performer and fellow Northern woman. Before I give you a taster of what Kate and I are nattering about, may I point you in the direction of last week's chops? I mean, you're not here to argue with me, so I'm gonna. And if you haven't already eaten it with your ears, it is a fascinating, and I imagine for a lot of women, a relatable chat our Jen had with writer Nell Frizzell about her new book, The Panic Years. That is what Nell calls the time of a woman's life between adolescence and menopause, and she talks to Jen about her experience of this time of flux. Back to Kate Fox. Kate's new volume of poetry, The Oscillations, is a gorgeous read, full of joy, wry observations and humour, while at the same time dealing with hard hitters such as loss, trauma and the pandemic. We also talk weak ties, dogs bums, neurodiversity and swimming in the North Sea. I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed chatting with Kate. Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by poet, comedian and all-round bloody lovely smasher, Kate Fox. Kate, hello. Hello. So I was just saying to Kate before we started recording that I am dressed entirely in grey and black, but in her colourful honour, I have found my fox badge, badge is a brooch, and also put on some red lipstick. But Kate is beautifully bright and colourful as ever. Does it reflect your mood, Kate? It probably does, actually. I'm a bit sad that the the rain has come back and the wind because two days ago it was as if spring decided to give us a little teaser trailer for spring. And we had warmth, we had sunshine over the blue sea and it was lovely. And I was like, I feel great. Oh, hang on, I'm not supposed to feel great. Um, (laughs) But um, so the weather is, it's brought me down a little, but generally I feel good. And of course I feel even better because you and your beautiful fox brooch and you're actually amazing if only this was telly we could see the matching of your beautiful grey jumper with your hair which is beyond Cruella de Vil it's like kind of doing some other beautiful silvery black thing and I love it do you know this is one of the things I miss just you know when you go about and you see people and you go whoa I like your jumper and they go yes I like your cardi and we get this little hit don't we of pleasure out of our clothes and our lipstick and our you know whatever we I, I miss that but at least it is available on Zoom. Yeah I read a, a really interesting piece in the Atlantic actually about how there were certain not necessarily what we'd call friendships but interactions that we're really missing out on that are just you know you go to a coffee shop and you say hey to the barrister who knows like who knows you a little bit because you're in there all the time or there's that person who lives around the corner and you see them at at the shop or whatever and you say hello and we're we're not doing that we're not doing it because we're not seeing people but even when we do bump into people there's that we can't stick around we've got to get back to our safe places our houses and, and we're really missing out on it Exactly. I I read that article too. I thought it was brilliant because, yeah, those what it called weak ties are are actually part of the backdrop that make our life fuller and better, aren't they? And there's the emphasis on maybe you're not seeing your family and your close friends, but at least you probably can catch up with them on the phone or on Zoom, but you're not going to ring the the bloke in the coffee shop up. Yeah, um, it's a nice day, isn't it? Yeah, I'll have some coffee. Having said that, where I am, I feel very lucky. There are three or four really nice cafes 
in walking distance and they've kept open doing takeaway throughout because there's always people at the seafront and even though occasionally the Daily Mail will come across and photograph the beach with a, a, a lens that makes it look like it's really packed. It's actually not. It's mm-hmm. a really safe place to be. One day, one of the blokes in the coffee shop did, even though I had my mask on, he said, oh, hello, Kate, because you have to give your name each time with the coffee. And I just, I felt this warm glow all through my body. I was like, oh, the man in the coffee shop said my name. And it was just such a happiness still available to me but we will have much much more of that again almost soon I want to say yeah hopefully I feel a bit like it's if we were dogs not humans it's like someone's told us we're not allowed to sniff each other's asses anymore exactly exactly and we all know that does not work for dogs I'm always surprised actually because people on walks with dogs will sometimes tell their dogs off for the sniffing of the asses mm-hmm. and you're like no that's how they that's they need to do that that's how they greet each other they're not being rude we've got a bulldog and Elsie Elsie gets she's she's clearly got a lovely bottom and she very much attracts all she brings all the dogs to her yard and this little dog comes scampering over and gives Elsie a, a doggy sniff and his female owner was just like dirty that's dirty I'm like it's not it's just a dog just being a dog yes she was revealing her own issues I feel like we've veered wildly from why I have got you on the zoom to have a chat but it's it's enjoyable stuff let's talk about your new collection of poems it's called the oscillations and it very much looks at the disturbances in our regular rhythms in the age of this pandemic can you tell us a little bit more about the oscillations and how it came about please yes as a poet I was getting on with writing poems for a next collection that I thought would probably be quite a lot about being northern and would possibly be quite a lot about how trauma lives on in people's bodies both in the way that they laugh at things and are joyous about things and in the way that they're sad about things in summary Um, and that kind of comes from my interest in researching comedy and why people do stand up and Mm -hmm. I'm just really interested in how audiences and performers um, one academic that I know described it as the performer is the doctor and the audience are the patient and I'm like that's all very interesting I want to encapsulate this in my poetry somehow and I had got chatting to Jane from Nine Arches the publisher when we were both in Hull during the City of Culture and she said oh I'd always wanted to publish you and I was like I've always wanted you to publish me hurrah <laughs> so she was going to be my next publisher and I was working away on the poems tum-tum. oh here's another poem about northernness Na-na-na. oh hang on here's a massive pandemic yeah. whoa and suddenly these themes became I mean the theme of trauma was suddenly very resonant but in a very different way and I didn't feel that I could ignore what was happening around me I didn't know at first whether I'd be able to write but actually I was at the time part of a, a writing group for poets who'd already published books and so we were meeting on zoom every month and I was writing poems for that group And then also I got a commission alongside a photographer called Colin Potzig and we were commissioned to do a project called 12 Days of Lockdown where basically I wrote poems for his photographs and he took photographs to go with my poems. So all these new poems and it became clearly how to go in the collection even though there was 
don't know, uh, probably a bit less joy in them <laughs> than there otherwise <laughs> would have been. So it was going to be published in November, but we pushed it back a bit to February, actually in hope that it would be possible to do live performances and gigs around it. But of course, it still isn't. But it has meant that those pandemic poems have gone in. And I reordered the collection so that we've got a before section and an after section. And I am totally aware, because this was the case with some of the people in my poetry group, some people, the last thing they are going to want to be reminded of in this time of disease, death, trauma, distance, separation, is all of those above things. Totally get to that. But at the same time, I felt like I couldn't not document it. Yeah, yeah. So those poems are there. We've also got a kind of story of a a relationship in there as well. Mm. I would say, in the end, it's a love story. But yes, could have gone horribly wrong in the middle. <laughs> oh, it so nearly did. I've always been a very noisy reader. I like narratives. I like narratives in poems. I like stories that have a beginning, a middle and an end. And I don't think it, probably the oscillations doesn't quite have that. But kind of. There were some last-minute poems that I wanted to put in there because they're quite hopeful, and there were some last-minute poems that went in there because I thought they updated the story that unfolds throughout the collection about me trying to become less traumatised, so they're in there. I think you've absolutely achieved that. I read it, and I read it as a journalist who was doing an interview in that I read it quite quickly, which is not necessarily the way to read poems, but I've already like made notes of ones that I want to go back to. I've already reread a couple of them that I'm going to talk about with you. And I think given the times, there are some understandably big, heart-wrenching topics in there. Loss, trauma, grief, they all loom large. But I have got to add for the listeners that they are delivered with a beautiful lightness of touch and quite often a dollop of northern humour. And I wondered, is your writing a way of processing what has happened to you? Because you're incredibly candid. Yes, and I'm glad you can see the humour. When I read back, I was like, oh, there are funny bits. It's just I hadn't put any in on purpose Unlike when I would write for performance, I'd be like, oh, make sure there's a punchline here. Need a funny bit. So the funny that stayed is probably because that is anyway a key way of how I process the world is having the distance that humour provides and looking at the ridiculous things and picking up on the surreal details. That's just how I... You know, that's how I am, that's how I see the world, that's mm-hmm. how so many of us see the world, actually. And then in terms of the other stuff, yeah, I think, although I wouldn't say I was writing poems as therapy, I think it's more that all the stories that the time, in, the, in both in the run-up to the pandemic and then during it, all the stories that I told about myself and who I am and what my life is, all those stories began to not make sense anymore. And partly, I mean, the thing was, I'd separated from my husband in the autumn before everything happened as well. So I was already in this kind of transitional state, living on my own in a flat, kind of making a new life. Mm-hmm. And then after that, kind of nothing else made sense. You know, after my, my stepmom died and I was negotiating this new relationship. And poems can be a way, I think, or, or any writing, actually, of putting things back together a bit yeah. and seeing there is some sense to be made, essentially. Maybe it's different doing it in a poem form than doing it in a piece of prose or a blog or some journalism, because those forms are definitely about 
turning it into sense. Whereas with a poem, you probably still have an idea of the fragmentedness of things. They're, they're not quite right somehow. As someone who is also a nosy reader, you're an incredibly generous writer. So the frankness, the conversations that you're having with your mum in particular, I think there's there's a real frankness that it's very nice as a reader not to feel like I'm intruding, but that in fact you are offering me this information. So there's a really lovely connection there with the poetry because it feels like poetry never goes out of fashion but does still remain a really hard sell for a lot of people. Do you think that's a fair thing to say? Oh, absolutely. I I mean, I, I have always felt, in a way, slightly... I'm going to say embarrassed to be a poet because I'm like, I'm really sorry that I am this obscure (laughs) thing. No, I want to be mainstream and reach people. However, that has changed actually in the last year because I have seen the, the solace and the different perspectives that poetry can give to people. And, and actually at a time where a lot of people's concentration was completely shot to nothing the little hit of little poems that you could just read quickly is, is actually useful. And because I, above all, and again, it's a bit annoying that I'm a poet, but really I want to be useful. <laughs> um, I, I like the idea that at least there is some tangible benefit for people that I've been able to see in their consumption of poetry. And and I think particularly now we've got online stuff, we've got Instagram poets, we did have performance poetry and we will again it'll be back it'll be back that actually there's so many more ways for people to to consume it it actually as a form probably fits really well the attention span and the needs of our online age yeah you I feel like you've snuck in and read my questions here Kate and to be honest with you I felt like you'd done it when I was reading the oscillations last night Because there has been this pandemic phenomenon of people just not having the capacity to take in books. And it is something that you reference in your poem Returns, which was one of my favourites. It does feel like poems are a really logical gateway to getting that back. They're this decent bite-sized morsel and they can be just as nourishing, I think, as a novel. Yeah, unless you're reading Paradise Lost, it takes a lot less time to consume them. Absolutely. I I really love the poems that are... um, So there's a collection that I recently kind of did the blurb for, and it's called um, Cures by Jo Brandon. It's out by Valley Press. And she makes these little, almost historical monologues in her poems. And somehow she has this skill of conjuring an entire world, and you can see it in your head. It's like a film unspooling, and she does it in sort of 40 or 50 lines. And there are lots of other poets whose names now immediately don't come to mind, obviously, um, who do this name. But actually, lots of poetry does that. And it's, yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, I already, it was funny, so when everything happened last March, I was already in a, a time of struggling with reading, since my separation, in fact, basically. There was a slight torture in the middle of that, in that I had to judge a book prize which meant I had to read 17 books in a few weeks time where I couldn't read so I had to read I did actually manage to do that but then after that again I couldn't really read and reading has always been my escape it's always been I've always put myself between the pages of a book it's what I did growing up and it's what I would have wanted to do during those first few uncertain months 
but I couldn't. So all I had actually was poems to read. I still didn't read as many of them as I could have. Even at certain points, even a poem was a bit much for me. Um, but, but sometimes there would at least be lines or fragments of lines. There's a line, it's almost like a mantra, I suppose. This too shall pass, this too shall pass. And also, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well, which Julian of Norwich said several hundred years ago. And that would just go through my head, and it kind of kept me going a bit, like a tweet on, on a loop. Yeah, well, I think you, you capture that in the poem in the oscillations called Cairns, where you just say, you are not alone, you are not alone. And actually, sometimes just reading that what it seems like a really simple sentence, but we, we don't necessarily self comfort very well. And to actually see it in front of us is so helpful. Mm. Yeah, you put, I think that's a great phrase, actually. Self comforting, isn't it? Absolutely. And a, and a poem is something that you can literally carry with you because it's very light. Um, <laughs> but you have bits of it in your head. The idea of learning poems by heart and every now and again a conservative politician will get very excited about this and decide this that learning poems by heart is the way to make Britain great again. So I am obviously <laughs> quite cynical about that. Um, but even keeping a line or a verse in your head can actually do something. Maybe it's like a magic spell a little bit as well, actually. I'm a huge fan seems a really weird word for what I'm about to say but I was a I'm a big fan of first world war poetry that's what really captured my imagination when it comes to poetry where maybe I'd struggled before and the one that is pretty much in my head and it's only I think it's maybe six lines is the general by Siegfried Sassoon and it's the general going past his troops going all right guys and they're all like oh isn't he lovely and then like he does for them all with his plan of attack and that's the final line. And I think poems can really capture a mood or this huge event, something as huge as what or living through a pandemic. That careful choice of language can make us think things that maybe we hadn't thought before. Yeah, and also it can make us remember things perhaps that we might otherwise forget. And mm-hmm. so that's one of the great things about war poetry it 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 brings it back to new generations in a in a different way that's not just factual and I know there were certain details that I wanted to capture like how even the telescopes on the seafront were sealed off for a while and that just felt so kind of sinister and so poignant but also they're not even sealed off now in this lockdown. It was just in the first lockdown. And I thought that was the sort of detail and image that people might forget. And I wanted us to hold on to that. And also the the thing with the, the tape across the benches, which is still one of the things I struggle with the most. Just so horrible. But again, trauma often makes us forget things. It's a natural reaction, isn't it? We are like, okay, that was horrible. I'm going to move on from that. Yeah, it's the way our brain protects us. Yeah, whereas I think maybe poetry and other writing can hold it for us in a way that we can process. It's not actually too traumatic, but it means that maybe we will remember why never, ever, if we can help it, to let this happen again. Many of the poems in the oscillations touch on neurodiversity, and that is something that in its its huge plethora of variations 
it's still really underdiagnosed in women. So I would wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about what that is and why it's important to you, Kate. Basically, I went along and got myself a late life diagnosis of autism at the age of 42, three years ago. Well, people will say, why did you do it? To be honest, I think the real reason is something to do with me being a writer and a performer and knowing that I wanted to talk and write about it, but probably feeling I needed the legitimacy of a diagnosis in order to do that. I didn't do it to get medical support because there basically isn't any available if you're an adult woman. The greatest benefit of the diagnosis has, has actually been something I could have had without that diagnosis, which is feeling p- part of a community of other autistic writers, speakers, people who were saying, look, the way we currently think about this stuff in the world is, is not right. <laughs> there are too many harmful stereotypes and stigmas around it, and it's important to speak out about them, both for new generations and for the benefit of people now who probably know that they are a bit different, know that they don't fit in quite, know that they think a bit differently and feel a bit differently and sense the world differently to other people, but don't have a name for it. You don't need a name or, or a label for it, but at the same time, it can be helpful to know that you're in the, the line of my other poems said you're not alone I'm also fairly sure I'm ADHD and I am mulling over whether it's worth getting a diagnosis of that because there is actually a medication available that might do things to my focus but at the moment my concentration is really good I've just written 10,000 words in the last two days and I think that medication might have made me less likely to do that <laughs> you couldn't, you couldn't see I... my face listeners but it was like <laughs> wowzers <laughs> yeah I kind of realised that I'd got back got my brain back because for a lot of last year I just didn't have full availability to it apart from anything oh I also got COVID as well I think quite early on and so lots of things impacting my concentration so anyway but yes so um, I like the word neurodiversity because that's an umbrella term for things like autism, ADHD, OCD, Tourette's, dyslexia, dyspraxia and I think people find it a bit easier to, to grasp onto the idea as a whole that um, people with those conditions experience the world differently and might benefit therefore from people accommodating them in in the way that we would hope that people with any disability are accommodated but it's still hard for that to happen now I think I could easily have not mentioned the word neurodiversity in my poetry book at all it's not in the poems themselves but I now realize that everything I write comes from the perspective of me as differently wired up brain person Mm -hmm. and I think it's worth saying that because actually partly to combat the stigma that says oh well if your brain's a bit different then probably your opinion is is not as valid as other people's and partly because I wanted to give people a bit of a, a heads up as to how to read some of those poems if they were interested I've just put it in a note at the back essentially that says some of this stuff that I'm talking about is actually about people who experience the world differently having said that i mean part of the reason i like being a poet is poets and comedians and performers and writers generally so many of us are neurodivergent and and without a diagnosis you know you sit in any comedian's green room if you set a psychiatrist loose in there (laughs) diagnoses you know enough for a conference as they say on faulty towers um but of course generally people in that world maybe don't need a label because actually they've found a niche they've found a way of being they've found 
don't know, something that suits who, who and how they are. But at the same time, for a lot of people, it's useful to know that stuff. So I, did, I just made a decision. I'm going to start talking about it more, even though whenever I say I'm an autistic woman, people will go, oh, you can't be autistic. You've made eye contact or, you know, oh, but you're so warm. You can't be autistic. But that's why it's even more important to break those stereotypes, to open up that conversation. And for readers, if you've got a teenage girl, and like we said, it's so massively underdiagnosed, particularly in young girls. But if you recognise yourself in that, there's comfort. There's a massive comfort. So I think it's bold and it's also really important. Yeah, thank you. No, I'm glad you've said that. And whenever I talk about it publicly, always there will be people coming to me then and saying thank you for talking about it I don't often hear myself or my children or whoever represented in this way so I know it's worth doing and for the occasional amount of flack I might get for that or being disbelieved that is definitely outweighed by the benefits. There's a line in a poem called Rheology 2 that really stood out to me where you say, I am most myself when I swim. Now, I'm aware that you like to chuck yourself into the sea, you nutter. But I love the idea that instead of losing ourselves in an activity, which is what we're sold, actually lost in the activity is when we're at our most us. Oh, yes, I'm glad you picked up on that. Yeah, exactly. Swimming, for me has become and particularly swimming outside as I call it because in an inverse snobbery type way I try and avoid the term wild swimming even though that is quite useful (laughs) it makes you sound more like a fish I think if you're wild swimming (laughs) (laughs) oh that's true that's good reason in itself um yeah for the past few years doing that has utterly transformed my relationship to my body which was quite a negative relationship you know I'd always had eating disorders I felt quite detached from my body but in the water I am just a body swimming often at one with the water I'm totally immersed in it I'm in the flow particularly when I learned how to do front crawl that was a big thing so I I still love doing head up breaststroke because you get to see everything around you and you don't mess your hair up Um, but front crawl under the water breathing I just feel like superman when I do it and I and the strength that comes as well if I've been kind of swimming all summer and I'm like I could swim for two miles well in fact secretly a bit of me is like I could just totally swim the channel probably (laughs) not any training Mm, probably couldn't actually um but the feeling of of strength in doing that and and it makes me maybe the last year has reinforced this as well I would think sometimes when I was swimming, I'd be like, I'm not bothered how well I'm doing in my work or if anyone's reading my words or if I'm getting gigs or if I've got Twitter followers. This is all that matters, really. And I I suppose I I kind of still feel like that, actually. Not that only swimming matters, but maybe that, that feeling of being at one with yourself, that's what matters. It's so hard to find space and time to even think about getting that feeling in daily life so I get a similar thing with running I start off and my brain is like having little arguments with people that there's no argument there to have but I'm having it anyway in my head and at some point and I never know when I'm not aware of the change but I just find that actually what I'm thinking is just keep running just keep running breathe in breathe out and it's it's so freeing it's so freeing 
Yes, that's it. The flow, the absolute flow state, which I can also sometimes get when performing. Um, but of course, that's not available now. I mean, at the moment, I'm having to compromise a little bit on that because it's so cold, I can't quite go in the sea long enough to fully get there. I just get a little hit of it. So I am still swimming in the sea, in the North Sea, that's now about six degrees <laughs> but not as often. Like, I am not... So I love the endorphins, and I, I do feel good when I go in. So I try going about once a week. But I am actually more looking forward to when we get back to, say, April. And the sea will still be cold, but I can go in and have a proper 20-minute swim. And also I can start going, oh, I can't wait. When when lockdown eases, I can go in, well, lakes and rivers, and I could go to the outdoor pools, and I'm going to get... So this is, it was a fantasy beforehand, but now it's going to have to become a reality. And miraculously, I can afford to do it as well. I'm going to get a camper van and I, there's going to be a lot of driving around swimming sites across the country, just throwing myself in cold water. I mean, that sounds like quite the plan. It doesn't tickle my pickle, but I have nothing but admiration for you. As established by the fact that you knocked out 10,000 words in two days, you are not one to sit twiddling your thumbs, Kate. What else have you been up to? I have, I suppose it's been kind of odd. So mainly I'm working on a book. I suppose I can't properly announce it um, because they have not announced it, the publisher, but like a proper big publisher that will put it in bookshops um, has asked me to write a book of my show about Northern women. So hence the 10,000 words. Amazing. Talk to me about that when it comes out, please. Oh, absolutely, will do. And um, yeah, which should be in a year, uh, next February. Um, so I'm doing that, I'm writing. So it's all, I mean, it's a very writerly existence, which for me is usually punctuated by going out and doing the gig, but of course isn't currently. And I'm writing a play about an imagined meeting between the poet Ted Hughes and the comedian Bernard Manning. Um, <laughs> as you do. Um, that was one of my like mad enthusiasms. <laughs> and I just got talking to the bloke who runs the Ted Hughes Festival about it when he had been to see my show. Again, that's the sort of thing that used to happen, isn't it? You bump into a person and you'd and go on about your latest obsession um, or I would anyway um, but luckily he thought that was a good idea and got some Arts Council money and commissioned it so I'm doing that, I'm legally isn't that weird that it was even not a thing, able to, to legally see my boyfriend now so that is really nice. That, that is good <laughs> so I'm just bobbing off to his house later that feels good to have more than one house that I can be in as well. Of course, that was so different to the first lockdown. There was just my flat. And I'm, yeah, launching the poetry book. Well, of course, The Oscillations, which, as you mentioned earlier, is published by Nine Arches Press, is out on February the 18th. But you're having an online shindig on February the 25th, aren't you? I am indeed, yes. And that will be... So I've only done two or three Zoom gigs. It's not been a thing that I have particularly embraced However, I've enjoyed each one more and more, and I'm really looking forward to this. I've got two other poets supporting me who were brilliant, Joanne Lindbergh and Jess Mukherjee. Both of them are also really good poets, I think, for those of us who are nosy readers. <laughs> Both their poems kind of complement mine in a way. Do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to proper old school. I'm going to plan my set out properly in order I'm going to rehearse it and I'm going to think of funny bits to say in between and and that might not sound you might be like well yes of course that's what you should do but I didn't need to do that in the olden days because I performed so often I would just sort of ad hoc respond to what the audience 
mood was I would have lots of funny things that I would just say and have planned or you know I've said loads of times before or just come into my head but now I realize I actually am gonna have to put some proper proper serious work into this it's it's a muscle it's atrophied a little bit so you need to loosen it up yeah definitely definitely so I'm not just gonna wing it and I do love winging it but I can see that it will work out better if I don't and also I am conscious of this thing of I want what I would want from a gig which is to come away feeling kind of uplifted and hopeful and like emotional parts of me had been reached and that maybe my sadness muscle had been twanged a bit and my trauma bone had been lightly tickled but that overall I was feeling energised that's how I want to make people feel and I, I think I used to do that apparently in the olden days I think, I think you've done that to me today on a miserable Wednesday morning so thank you very much Kate where can people find out more about what you're up to please you can go on my website which is katefox.co.uk or you can go on the well no that's the main place oh on Twitter Twitter join me on Twitter at katefoxwriter I was going to say Instagram but all I do on Instagram is mainly post pictures of me after a swim or the sea. But of course, if that, that'll be some people's thing. So that's at Kate Fox Writer as well. Awesome. Kate, thank you so much for chatting with me. Thank you, Mickey. It's been lovely. Thank you. Standard issue for all women.